0: We've been going through a series called Small Letters with a Big Message, and I had planned on teaching the letter of Jude today, and I was studying Jude, reading Jude, going through Jude, preparing for uh, the sermon this morning, when I realized on Friday that our kids are in the service, and the letter to Jude, if you've not read it, it's a little bit hbo And I didn't feel I would be doing the text justice to teach it like Nickelodeon when really I got to teach it red band trailers. So next week we're going to be teaching Jude and this morning, so I just, I reached back into my Pentecostal heritage and I just jotted a thought down on a napkin this morning on my way here. I'm kidding. I'm kidding, Pentecostals. I'm kidding. We we, we need... The desperation of the Pentecostals in in all the churches. Right? Raise your hand if you have a Pentecostal background. Anybody? Okay, one hand is fine. You Pentecostals. Oh my goodness, guys. Whoa! I'm here. I'm just kidding. Uh, the Presbyterian Church would do well with more Pentecostalism infused into into into. Uh, so uh, all about being ecumenical. Now this morning, uh, we're going to look at First John, the letter of First John, chapter five, the end of the text, uh, because this this. Um, coheres nicely with some of the other teaching we've been looking at that John had been writing in 2 John, Third John. So we're going to look at the end of his letter, 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep sinning, but the one who is begotten of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to unpack these three statements that John makes at the end of his first letter, where he says, we know, we know, we know. And... We're going to expound upon this and hopefully be really encouraged by the goodness of the gospel and the implications for our lives uh, right here, right now. So the first thing we know is we know who we are. He says that we are born of God. And uh, in the Greek, it's a play on words because he says we are Ganao of God, begotten. And we are kept by the one who is begotten. So John says, we are begotten of God, and then there is the, capital B, begotten, Jesus, who keeps us. So what this is, gives us is very strong language. It's not, just, it's not a throwaway statement, oh, we're born of God. What he's saying is, he is conferring both the nature of God and the disposition of God on us. Jesus Christ, of course, is perfect and divine, and so for the resident theologians in the room here, I'm not trying to say that the incommunicable attributes of God are applied to humanity. What I'm saying is, John is using strong language to say, if we're united to Christ and we're indwelled by his spirit, then our resemblance is actually empowered. But the Christian life is not some sort of rolling up the sleeves, knuckle-dragging, trying harder, sweating you know, experience. We don't put on our hair shirts and wake up every day and feel like we're miserable sinners that aren't becoming, uh, you know, don't fully reflect Jesus. It's a life of effort, to be sure, but it's driven by enjoyment. It is the goodness of the gospel that we desire this uh, resemblance of Christ that is empowered. And so he says that the one who is begotten of God, this is Christ, he protects us. And then he uses a phrase which is really interesting. He says, and the evil one does not touch us. What could that mean? If, on a surface reading, it just seems like, hey, if you're a child of God, nothing bad is going to happen in your life. You know, God's got you, and the evil one can't touch you. And faith is like a force field that keeps all suffering away, which we know is absurd. Because if we have read the Bible, we know it's absurd, because everybody suffered. Uh, all the children of God suffered, or the people of God suffered. And today, humanity in general, if you are a human being living on planet Earth, suffering is part of this thing that we call life. It's inescapable. It's unavoidable. So what is he saying when he says the evil one doesn't touch? Well, what he actually uh, is saying here, it's a Greek verb, it's a present tense Greek verb that John only uses twice. He's the only author that uses this particular verb. But it means to cling to something relentlessly, a continuous clinging, an ongoing, constant, unbroken, unbroken, sort of continuity of clasping something. So what he's saying is the evil one does not have an ongoing, unrelenting grip on those who are born of God. Saying that there is hope that all of us, even though we will struggle with sin our whole lives, it doesn't grip us in a way where we are absolutely incapable of spiritual growth, maturity, curving out of ourselves, putting off our sin, putting off our old humanity, and living into a new humanity. What he's saying is the evil one doesn't have that kind of a grip. You're begotten of God, and therefore he can't cling. The other time that John uses the same phrase, you'll recall after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Mary witnesses the resurrected Christ in the garden, and she immediately clings to Jesus. And Jesus says, and John records using the same Greek verb, Mary, stop clinging to me. In other words, you're already clinging, and he's like, Jesus is using it as a term of endearment. Mary, you have to let me go. There's more than this. I've got to ascend to my Father. The Spirit is coming. Mary, you've got to let me go. He uses it in an endearing way. Here, John is using it in a sort of a a spiritual warfare type of a way, where he's saying that the enemy just can't cling to our lives that way. So this is tremendous uh, words for us. This is incredibly encouraging for those of us who struggle, which is all of us in this room, with ways that we would like to resemble Christ more and not resemble our old sinful patterns more. John gives this phrase because he's more concerned with allegiance than activity. He's breaking apart two realms, two dominions, two loves, and that's the significance of all of this. He's saying that's why he opens up uh, this portion of the text by saying, the begotten of God don't keep on singing, sinning. Of course, we struggle, but it's, 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 not, uh, it's not an impossible, unforgiving, and uh, utterly useless, futile struggle he's trying to infuse the church with hope here. And he uses this language because he reminds us that we're not beast-like. And the reason I'm using that term beast-like is because all throughout the scripture, we continually get images, in particular in the wisdom literature, that describes our struggle with sin like being like beasts. And, and, and uh, the scripture describes it like this impulse that just like an instinct, like an animal has a particular instinct that it just always does. It's, It's just intrinsic to the animal. It's in its makeup. It's in its DNA. It's just, it's what it always does. And Proverbs uses that sort of language because it comes all the way uh, back to the very first mention of the word sin in the book of Genesis when Cain kills his brother Abel. Before he kills his brother, God says to Cain, who's already got anger and murder in his heart, God says to Cain, Sin is crouching at the door and it wants to devour you. So the very first mention we get of sin is the image of an animal that's about to spring. Why is it about to spring? Because this is the only thing that it does. This is the impulse. This is where it always goes. It's instinctive. So that beast-like animalistic idea around sin is all throughout the scripture. And John is saying here, you know what? The enemy can't cling to you. You're not in the grip of this... Unstoppable natural force in, in, Inside of your biology That you just can't resemble Christ And you can't bend your knee to the lordship of Jesus You just have to keep living this way John is saying actually that's not true We know who we are We're not who the culture says we are We're not who our parents say we are Our upbringing or our schools Or our, uh, uh, those in our, uh, in our offices Or on our campuses We know who we are We are the ch- very children of God The begotten of God So it's very strong language, it's intended to be incredibly encouraging, Um, and it's calling us to a deep trust transfer, so that we can begin to live into something new, which leads us to the second thing that we know. He says we know who we are, we're born of God, and we know where we are. We know where we are, our lives lie in the hands of God, yet this world lies in the power of the evil one. And we will do really well to stay out of the ditches on, 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 on this statement. The ditches of both triumphalism and escapism. John says we're in the hands of God. The world lies in the power of the evil one. But how do we as Christians relate to that statement? We've got to stay out of the ditches. We can never really have true rest in our hearts and our minds unless we can see what John is saying by the whole world being in the power of the evil one. Unless we can come to grips with that, we're going to have the wrong posture in the world. A triumphant posture, which is utterly unattractive to those who do not know Jesus, or an escapism posture, which is utterly useless to those who do not know Jesus. Are we surprised when things in the world go sideways? When we hear of another tragedy or a war, or you wake up in the morning and you check your newsfeed and some other crazy thing has happened in the city or in our nation or in the world. Are we surprised by this? Or is there a part of us that we're saddened by it, appropriately saddened by it, but we expect it? Because when Christians are constantly surprised, constantly, you know, uh, amazed at the state of the world, uh, we can become very angry very quickly. The conversations, the narratives, the The world has, whenever horrific things happen, like another war breaks out, or there's another refugee crisis, or there's another oppression of the poor, or somebody else creates some, you know, does some violent act, or somebody leaves their family and now they're on a a road to poverty. There's a thousand things. When these things happen, um, there's a conversation in the world that sounds like this. Come on, guys, we're better than this. But when we look at the cross, we realize we're not better than this. We're not better than this. This is who we are as humanity. You see, the gospel, and I'm going to borrow a phrase from Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller, would say, we're worse than we think we are, but we're more loved than we ever dared imagine. And that is the message of the gospel. Yes, this is who we are. Sit in the gravity of who we are. But now, sit in the amazement of God's wondrous grace that our God doesn't sit back, distant from his creation, holding his nose in disgust, saying that he, can't, he just doesn't want to be near us. The biblical narrative is God constantly coming towards us. The Holy One coming towards those who are not holy. The Righteous one coming, to one's the one coming towards the ones who aren't righteous. The All-Loving One coming towards the ones who aren't loving. The whole meta-narrative of Scripture is God wanting to give all that is God to those who don't want God this radical mercy, this radical love. And so we sit in the gravity of who we are. Yeah, this is who we are. This is the crazy waywardness of our world, and we're all not just victims of the injustice, but we've all contributed to it in some way through acts of being unloving and through a myriad of ways we've been selfish. We've all contributed to it. And so we don't want to be surprised by this. We don't want to fall into arrogance or pessimism. What we want to relate to, this phrase when he says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, we want to relate to it with humility and unshakable confidence. That's what John is trying to do to the church. You know, spoiler alert, at the end of the book when he says little children, it's this term of endearment. He's like, you guys can make it. And here's how do I, as a church father, impart a sense of resilience and forge character and hope and stability and strength in these these little kids, in this little young church. Well, the way that I do that is in the same way that a parent wants to raise children to live in this world today, you want to forge resilience in them. So therefore, there's some things that the kids need to know. They need to know that they're loved. They need to know who they are. They need to know they're going to be provided for. They need to know that no matter what happens in their life, if their life goes sideways, you will be there for them. That's how you forge resilience in children. And this is what the Heavenly Father does as he's forging resilience in us and what the Apostle is doing by extension by writing this way to the church. And that enables the church to relate to the world and the power of the evil, evil one with humility and not arrogance, with unshakable confidence and not being shocked all the time. The Christians that are shocked all the time, the Christians that are outraged all the time, they constantly sound a little bit angry. They constantly sound like, actually, they don't like the city that they live in. They're actually a little bit disgusted and put off by the people that don't share their faith or their values. This is not what John is trying to forge in the church by saying they lay in the power of the evil one, so be grossed out by the chasm between their ethics and yours. No. He wants there to be a sense of resilience here so that their joy isn't drained. He wants their joy to be filled. He wants them to live a different life, a new humanity. It is cross-shaped. It is self-emptying. And if you live a cross-shaped self-emptying life on your street with a couple people, or in your place of work with a couple people, in this room with a couple people, if you're living a selfless, cross-shaped, self-emptying life, that will not drain you. Some of you are in here thinking, boy, this sounds kind of draining. It will fulfill you. It is the pathway to fulfillment, the cross-shaped, Christ-like life, where you're not absorbed with yourself, thinking about yourself, orbiting around yourself. It is the pathway to freedom. It is the new humanity. And so, this is what John is hoping to forge in the church by using that phrase, they lay in the power of the evil one. Think of the Pharisees, by contrast, who, they knew the world was in the power of the evil one. The way that they related to it was with pride and disdain. And they actually prayed prayers that sounded like this. Father, I thank you that I'm not like them. That's quite a bit different than, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so, he says, the world is in the power of the evil one. The world, what does that mean? It doesn't mean the glorious nature. Oh my goodness, it can't mean that. God loves his creation. It can't mean the different cultures and civilizations and the myriad of ways in which there's, you know, sort of ethnic diversity, which is beautiful. mosaic demonstrating just the vastness of our God. He's not referring to that. The world in the Greek is cosmos, which means a few things, it could be in the ordered cosmos, but here it means the way that something is logically ordered. So what John is saying is the ordering of the world is in the power of the evil one. The way that things are ordered, the way the way in which we are going about relating to our life, it can be ordered in a way that is contrary to the love, the grace, the wisdom, the generosity of our God. We can find that in politics, we can find it in the free market, right? We constantly be upset that the government legislates and does things that are contrary to our ethics or we can get fed up and it comes around voting time and we have to go through lots of exercises to decide who we're going to vote for because, you know, if, if we dedicate enough time to it, you can find Christian ethics in all of the parties somewhere. You can sort of find a dim shadow of things that resemble uh, the wisdom of our God, we can find that. But then there's also these things in every single party that are totally contrary to our values and ethics, and it's very difficult. So there can be tempting to say, "Oh, the government's a disaster. The government's a mess." It, you know, the solution would be dissolve the government so that we can just all keep all of our money in our pockets and create our own utopia through the free market. And in the words of theologian Susan Dunk, the market doesn't love you. Can we ever find any examples around the world where people were not, did not have their income somehow uh, restricted in some way by the government and they were just allowed to just use 100% of the resources? Oh, I don't know. It's not difficult to find places where if somebody could pay you a dollar a day, they would. If they could pay you 50 cents a day, they would. Of course, there's also generous people exist in the world. Thank God for his common grace. But it's a bit of a mess. And what John wants the church to do is not get angry and frustrated and frothing at the mouth at all of this, but to realize the way that things are ordered ought not to be the way you are ordered. The way that every, the way that all the political memes fly into your newsfeed at unrelenting pace should not be the way you speak about politics. The way you and I speak about it ought to be quite a bit more informed and nuanced and wise than those who have a card in their pocket that say, "I belong to this." No, you don't. You don't belong to that. We know who we are. We're born of God. And we live a dual citizenship, and therefore we will live as Canadians within this particular political system. And we will do our best to seek the good of the city and enable the city to thrive, and we will do that. But no, we don't belong to those things. Same with our business. If you want your business to thrive, if you're a business owner, if you want to increase your profit margins every single year, all you've got to do is find all the lowest producers and fire them at the end of every fiscal tournament. You're probably going to do well. Just find out who they are and fire them. That's a corporate narrative that works, but that should not be our narrative when we're looking at these people and recognizing that now they've got families and children and houses and mortgages and rent payments and all these sorts of things. Perhaps there's another way that we can order the way in which we own and run our businesses that isn't just a carbon copy of what everybody else is doing to relentlessly increase the profit margins. And on and on I could go, but this is what John is getting at. The way things are ordered should not be the way that they are ordered for us. So if, if the church sits back with sort of a, a triumphalism, to borrow a term from N.T. Wright, It's this over-realized eschatology. And what he means by that is it's like the church, when they fall into the ditch of triumphalism, will look at the city and kind of be like, ooh, gross, these are my ethics and values as a Christian, and I'm not seeing them reflected in my city. And it's the church's job to Christianify the city. And so then the whole posture of the church ends up being quite combative. And then you're always in a mental narrative of losing ground or gaining ground and the conversation from the pulpit to the to the chairs is always like come on church what are we doing this the city is going to hell and we got to make up lost ground but this is not the narrative it was never the narrative when john was 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 writing this it's not the intention precisely because the god is not trying to restore a kingdom state israel was a kingdom state Israel had God's law, and God's law navigated not only their own private practice of their faith, but also God's law governed the way they did business and community and civic life and everything. That's the whole point of the 613 laws in the Torah. They were all pointing to something else. They're all pointing to purity and holiness and goodness and love and their need for a God who could provide that. And it was to sort of govern their life. So Israel was a kingdom state. Canada is not a kingdom state. So it is a, the, the triumphalistic position of like, we've got to get back to the golden age of Christianity in Canada. It, this is utter nonsense, because there never was a golden age. And I know you have people in your life that like, go, oh yes, 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 Canada was much more Christian at this particular point in history. What? What are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about this particular point in history when abortion was illegal and uh, sexual ethics sort of were closer to Christian narrative. You mean that time when we were sending, you know, selling $10 billion worth of bombs to Afghanistan so that they could just absolutely destroy other nations like that period? There's never been a Christian period in Canada's history. We've only had, we've only had glimpses and shadows of particular ethics at particular times in our country. And so the triumphalistic sort of posture against the city makes us useless in terms of mission because Canada is not a kingdom state. God was not restoring a kingdom state when John wrote this, when they were under the totalitarianism of Rome. That's not, what he, that's not what he was doing. But the other ditch is also a problem. The church gets exasperated, like, oh my goodness, everything just seems to be, you know, feels like Ecclesiastes, a theological groundhog day. The sun comes up and it goes back down. And it returns to the place of the east comes from the, the wind comes from the east and it goes to the west. And we live and we die. And whether we're wise or we're fools, everybody's hurtling towards the boneyard, so why does it really matter? And then you fall into the other ditch of escapism. Where you just like, that's it, I'm checking out. I'm checking out, man. Plant the church far away from civilization. Just plant it where there's more plants than people. That's the dream. And then we just... We just huddle in there, man, and we, I just get up here and I, and I preach sermon after sermon about how it's better out here in the plants than in the city with the people. Oh, those gross people. The, the escapism just leads to, like, we just check out. But we're called to be sent in as compassionate ministers. So this statement is given... That we are in the hands of God, and the city lies in the hands of the evil one. Not to, not to provoke us to be cynical, but to make us sing. Not to make us scoff, to, but to make, give us lives of gratitude. Because we know that the, the, the world is not going to heal itself. We're not going to fix it. We don't want to just stare at it like it's the grub in the tub, and we don't want to be a part of it. We want to go in as ministers of love and of care. And there's obvious low fruit with all of this because I've talked about some of the low hanging fruit that's easy to talk about war and these sorts of things. But there's another way in which life is just the cosmos is ordered by the power of the evil one. And it's just in the day-to-day sort of humming along, going to work, going to school, having coffee in the park, enjoying the city without giving God a second thought because who cares? Not a life of worship. We have our worship. Our work is our worship. Our toys, our recreation, our comfort, our vibe. It's all our worship. We don't need to give God a second thought. We can just order our lives as sort of a cosmic plagiarism. I got here and I'm enjoying this life I have because I've worked hard for it. And so there it's cosmic plagiarism, just ignoring, you know, the, the, the grace and the goodness of God in our lives. And I got that term cosmic plagiarism from the late Tim Keller. And I thought I should say that so I didn't plagiarize a phrase about plagiarism. Um we can just create a sort of a neo babel where we just build our life onto our own selves and this is another way in which we could just be ordered we've got but uh, the letter here that John is writing he wants this resilience this care this compassion in the church so that we can have the eyes of our heart opened to see and the last thing is we know where our life is going now we don't know where it's going in terms of the details of course But in a grand scale, we know exactly where our life is going. We understand the teleology of our life. Um, The the biblical narrative is a a comedy from a literary point of view, from a classic literary point of view. It's a comedy. The Bible starts very low. Creation ends in damnation, but it ends very high. The restoration of all things. It's a comedy. If you do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you do not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God who we claim to be, who came and went to the cross to die a substitutionary death for our sin. But not only that, not because God is a cosmic perfectionist who's like, ooh, gross, I want holy and obedient people, I want obedient subjects. No, he's a loving father that loves his creation, and he wants what he wanted in the beginning, which is life with us, and therefore he comes in Jesus Christ, yes, to be an example of perfect holiness and glorious righteousness, of course, but what did the holiness and the righteousness look like? It looked like God moving towards those who would reject him. And if you don't believe any of that, and you don't believe that Jesus Christ rose on the third day, and that the reason that the tomb was empty in 33 AD, under the reign of Pontius Pilate, if you don't believe that, then life is not a comedy. Life is a tragedy. Because no matter how healthy you are and how strong you are, your body's getting older and weaker. And no matter how wealthy you are, it isn't going to matter because life for all of us is headed the same direction. It's a tragedy. And no matter how powerful you are, no matter how uh, likable you are, no matter how much influence you have in the city, no matter if you're the greatest world changer that you know or that others would know, a hundred years from now, which is no time at all in this span of the age of the universe, a hundred years from now, none of us will be here. And that apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is a tragedy. And to the degree that you don't think about that, then you can have joy, which is essentially living from one distraction to the other. But for the Christian, our joy is we can look at all of the reality in the face and actually it pushes us more deeply into our joy, into the teleology of where life is going. He says that where our life is going is into this eternal life. And what does that even mean? Well, we're living in an age, an age that's a bit of a paradox, beautiful things to enjoy in humanity, but also the the terrible things that we discussed earlier. This is our age, but another age is coming, and it is the age that comes with the return of Christ the King. And that the Bible calls unto the age, or the eternal life. And this is the renewal of everything that ultimately in our humanity we desire. And we would love to be able to get there smoothly, but we won't. And John knows we're not going to get there smoothly, and he wants the church to be people of resilience and character for the difficult times. We used to drive to Florida... Most March breaks when our kids were little, we'd drive to Florida many, many times. Long drive, I love driving, didn't mind making the drive. One year, we drove through a massive storm. It was brutal. And driving through this massive snowstorm through the mountains of Virginia, it just absolutely pitch black, terrifying drive. And I love driving and I enjoy driving, but it was very intimidating. The kids are in the back, eating snacks, watching videos. Woo, we're going to Florida. We want the Christian life to be like that. Right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit's just driving us through all the storms, and we're just in the back, like, woo. The teleology of my faith is leading me to ultimate renewal. We just want that. But it's not like that. It's a little bit more like Susan, who is in the front next to me, who doesn't have the wheel, but probably wishes that she did. And so it's like this, it's like this exercise of, of, of trust mixed with. Anxiousness mixed with moments of calm mixed with moments of fear but it's kind of like we're going to get there but I'm not really ultimately at the wheel here. Our, our, our journey of Christian faith feels a little bit more like that. And the end of the, the text uh, ends with John using this phrase little children keep yourself from idols. What a closing line. Why would he say that? Because he knows we can look at the birds and the flowers and we know that God has us. We know that we can look at these things and we know that God will care for us. He will provide for us. It will fuel a life of generosity. He wants the church to have joy and buoyancy when life is terrible. And the way for that to happen is to not have idols. Not to trust in the temporal. Not to take some small good thing and elevate it to becoming the ultimate thing. He's saying you've got to properly order your life. You've got to properly order things so that you can actually enjoy things without worshiping things without worshiping the lesser things. He, he closes the letter with this vivid image. Born of God, our hearts and our minds are untangled from the way the world is ordered and united to him. We don't sit back in judgment. We're sent forth in compassion. We're sent in so that giving a defense for the hope that we have in Jesus. We have an unsinkable joy in a world that constantly drains joy. We have true soul rest amidst a, worth, a world that is constantly at unrest. With the same God who untangled us and brought us out, he will, through the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, bring others out. Let's pray.